the more expensive the dollar it is, the easier it is to buy from the rest of the world and the harder it is to sell to the rest of the world. Once more unto the breach, dear friends, else close the wall up with our English dead. Good morning, ladies and gentlemen, aspirationally, boys and girls. Uh, welcome to the Personal Wealth Coach. This is Jake McClure. On the line with me, I have... Jeff McClure. Uh, together, we are bald. Oh, together, we are the Personal Wealth Coach and, and mm-hmm. bald. I'm glad you got that straight. Yes, we have to establish, this is full disclosure, you guys need to have uh, total knowledge of the fact that there are two bald men with beards talking to you at the moment. Um, this is the Personal Wealth Coach, which is, we hope to be talking today about economics and finance, how to look at investments, how to look at the economy in general, how to make good decisions with your own finances We'll probably also talk on some big uh, pieces of economic data and big pieces of history when it comes to the economy. Um, Don't ask us about sports. That's our very first disclosure. We should make that part of our formal stuff. If you ask us about sports, don't be surprised if you get an answer that is so full of ignorance, uh, it will astound even, generally speaking, the most ignorant. Uh, We know very little about organized sports. However, when it comes to the economy, hopefully we're the people that can give you the answer that you need. Would you like to take the next disclosure now that I've said the sports disclosure? Let's say um, the personal wealth coach is an SEC registered investment advisory firm, which doesn't imply that it's approved by the SEC, just that the SEC is our regulator. And uh, we are the principals at the SEC Registered Investment Advisory Firm. And, um, but we're not giving investment advice. Right. We're giving educational information on this radio program uh, because we don't give investment advice except to individuals based on their specific circumstances. And since, very frankly, we don't know your specific circumstances because we don't know if anybody's listening or if you, who you are if you are listening. So we're not going to give you investment advice on the radio. It'd be really easy to give investment advice on the air if we knew that no one was listening. Then what? we would tell them the appropriate thing for no one to do is nothing. Well, I think the appropriate thing for no one to do is to buy high and sell low. Well, no one should do that. So you're absolutely correct. So we should say no one you should buy high and sell low. There you go. You should not. Um, oh, yeah, that's it. Yeah. No one should. No, no one should uh, buy high and sell low. Correct. So if no one is listening, please do that. And uh, uh, I guess mother need to disclose too. Oh, yeah. Uh, do you, and I'll do this one so you can get the deem later. Um, oh, good. You get to use deem and warranty and guarantee. Yeah. All, all in the same sentence, no less. The information we present on this educational radio program is obtained from sources we deem to be reliable, but we make no warranty or guarantee as to its accuracy or completeness. Don't you like that? That was so good. It's the only time I get to say those words. Right. Well, we have a whole bunch of stuff about the market to talk about, and then we've got 
two questions waiting out there in the wings already from emails that have come in already. Thanks, John. Uh, those of you that would like to ask questions, we're not taking phone calls at the moment, but uh, if you can email us, we will answer that. Our email addresses are jeff at tpwc.com or thepersonalwealthcoach.com or jake at tpwc.com or both if you prefer. Uh, so you want to jump into the market now? Please wear your swimming suits. Okay, the S&P 500 stock index end of the year. Yay, that was it. That's the end of the market news. Anyway, it popped up at the last day, which was Thursday. It popped up at the end of the day, and that one combined with its jump on Monday uh, caused it to rise 1.17% for the week, which is good. Uh, it's up 16.26% for the year. Now, that's an interesting number because if you'd gone to, if you if you looked at it January first or beginning of the January second last year and you looked at it today, you'd say, "Wow, market's up sixteen percent. Good year, no problems." Had you actually been aware of what was going on during the year, you would have noticed that it fell thirty seven percent early in the year, and then rose sixty seven percent. No, it, I'm sorry, it fell thirty four percent. It rose sixty seven percent to get where it is today, which is one of those reasons we don't suggest you do market timing. Right. In one of the old rules that I heard a very good presentation several years ago about it is sell in May and go away. That would have been the, a really bad idea this year. <laughs> sell in May and going away is an old saw on wall street that says every year, if you just sell in May and don't buy until October, uh, you would have a you would have a consistent gain over time. The problem is years like this one come along and clobber and, it, and would have re- removed all of your gains that you made over the last twenty years or so in one fell swoop. Which just shows as though there's no rules. There's no rules on Wall Street. There's no rules that you can follow that says if the market does this, you do that, and you will automatically make money. Despite all the publications that say there are such rules or magic ways of doing things. Yeah. The closest to magic or rules are having a lot of patience and, and sticking it out for a long time while being extremely well diversified. That means a general practitioner doctor should do really, really well. He has lots of patience. He's well diversified. He sticks it out for. Yeah. And in medicine, if you're, yeah, yeah. Lots of (laughs) patience. That's the definition of a a doctor, isn't it? Mm. Yeah. Different kind of patient. Successful doctor. If the doctor is not very successful, he doesn't have much patience. And yeah. and if he's very successful, his patients may be impatient. They're all and waiting it, in the waiting room, not not calmly. It's important to recognize a couple of things about the market. At the beginning of the year, it's a good idea to rehearse those things. The market, the stock market over a long period of time, by every reckoning I've been able to find, is the best performing place best performing asset class you can use. I mean, it's just if you say, okay, let's take real estate or the U.S. stock market or you go into any of the number of things that you want to throw in there, bonds or anything else, you say, what is the best performing asset class? What, Where would your money, if you invested it over a long period of time, meaning 20 years or so, make the most money? And the answer is inevitably the stock market of the United States of America. The problem with that is, to give you an example, had you invested at the top of the market in 2000, just before it began to fall, and you adjust for inflation, it would have taken you about 15 years before you saw a gain. 
that happens, which is what we talk about when we say diversification is very important. And during bull markets, the S&P 500, which is the index we follow and report on, shows tremendous gains and eventually people get to the impression, get the impression that it does nothing but go up, maybe some short-term downs. And then unexpectedly, and with nobody generally able to predict it very well, the market takes a nosedive that can easily run to 50% and sometimes take a long time to recover. It's important to be diversified. It's important to have lots of different things in your portfolio, even in your investment portfolio that you keep at a brokerage firm. Um, it's just a little warning. It's important to be well diversified and have the ability to ride out a down market. Anyway, about 11% of the stock market's gain this year, which of the 16% gain was in the last quarter when there was absolutely nothing out there that would say that the that things are getting better. Matter of fact, things got worse all during the quarter as far as the economy is concerned. But 11% of that 16% occurred in the last quarter when things were getting worse. So you can't even depend on the fact that if things are getting worse, you shouldn't be invested. Quite the contrary. In fact, uh, a lot of times it's the initial pain rather than the long-term agony that causes the market to drop. And the market may be recovering during the long-term agony. So... It, it's counterintuitive, and I think that may be the rule of the day, is that the market is not going to do what you intuitively think it will. That's absolutely it. The other thing about the market, the stock market, it broke another record for high, the S&P 500, as well as several other indices, on the last day of the year. Now, that is not absolutely significant. It's been breaking records and breaking records, but it broke several other records, too. The amount of money margined, for buying stocks. In other words, the amount of money that's being borrowed right now to buy stocks with is also at a record. And the number of new investor, new investment accounts, open small investment accounts opened by amateurs is at an absolute record. It was a surge of that during the last several months. So those are indications that there is a risk in the market. Historically, when we've had a lot of individual investors open new accounts in the market in a short period of time, Within the next couple of years, there has been a significant market drop. The same thing is true when you get a lot of people buying stocks on margin. And the reason for both of those is the people who are buying stocks in small investment accounts, amateurs, and the people who borrow money to buy stocks are easily startled and easily want to run away because the people who borrowed money to buy stocks are always thinking about the possibility of a margin call where if the stock drops enough that they bought they get, they get called and the money gets all taken away and they lose everything that they invested. And that keeps them afraid just below the surface, even while they're enthusiastic. So once some of them start to sell, the rest of them tend to stampede. That doesn't mean there's anything wrong with the market. It doesn't mean there's anything wrong with the economy. It just means that when you get a lot of people who are easily stampeded together, it's not unusual to expect a stampede. Yeah. Well, how's that for commonsensical? The other side of the market, that's the, 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 the S&P 500 is composed basically of several different elements, but it's being led by large cap growth stocks. In other words, very large capitalization means there's their total stock outstanding is worth a lot of money. And they're growth stocks, meaning they're not priced on their current intrinsic value. They're priced on what somebody thinks somebody else will pay for it in the future, which we consider sort of speculative. The other end of the S&P 500 is mid-cap value. Now, not small-cap value because the small caps are not in the S&P 500 stock index. Mid-cap value just barely broke even for the year. 
which makes sense given the economy that we have right now. Uh, Mid-cap value are mid-sized companies, most of which you've never heard of, that are priced based on their intrinsic value, uh, like consumer goods and things like that, where uh, Procter & Gamble's a large-cap value stock, and it's one I like to talk about because people understand it. People do not stop buying diapers in a recession. So Procter & Gamble is a value stock based on its actual sales, its actual uh, worth, its actual real estate value, all the things in it, put it together, and that's what prices a stock. Those are called value stocks. And they are just barely broke even for the year. They reflect the reality in the economy. The 10-year Treasury note, which is one we also follow pretty carefully, because the higher the yield on the 10-year Treasury note, the more demand there is anticipated to be for borrowing money. And borrowing money is what indicates the economy is going to take off because people, businesses borrow money in the open market to buy new things and build new buildings. And when they're not borrowing money, interest rates are low. And when they are borrowing a lot of money, interest rates tend to get high. But it, uh, the yield dropped 1.8% to yield 0.919, which is good in a sense. And then it's better than what it's been through most of the year. It's nearly but, at 1% again, which is yeah. kind of a big deal. But it was running close to 2% a year ago. In other words, the yield on the 10-year treasury is about half of what it was a year ago which means that the bond market, unlike the stock market, is saying, no, this recovery is not going to be as hot as you think it is. So they're in, a dif they're in a disagreement. Now, the other thing the bond market is telling us is it has a positive yield curve, meaning that the longer the, the, the maturity of the security on the, on the, from, the, from the Treasury, the higher the interest rate, which is healthy. That indicates that the bond market collectively, people who buy and sell on the bond market, have concluded that there's not going to be a recession in the near future and the economy is going to improve. They just think it's not going to improve that much. The stock market is saying, hey, we're going to have gangbusters growth in the economy. The bond market is saying, no, we think not so much. But that's good. Now, 10-year, the other thing we look at as an indicator is West Texas Intermediate Crude Oil Price, <coughs> which we call WTI. Wait a minute. Was that, was that coronavirus coming out right there? No, it wasn't. Just, just, just cedar it, fever? West Texas cedar reaction is what it was. Yeah. Uh, <clears throat> the, but the West Texas Intermediate Crude dropped a quarter point to $48.42, $48.42 a barrel. Um, that's about 21% down from where it was at the, as the year started. But that's much better than the 50% down than it was earlier. In other words, the... Crude oil is, is saying, hey, the economy is picking up somewhat, but it's still nowhere near as good as it was. And the futures on that indicate the same thing. They're, they indicate that around $50 a barrel is a fair price going forward, which is not bad because at $40 a barrel, most drilling companies can make a profit. So there's a lot of good news, but it's, it's a, there's, a, there's a debate going on between the uh, folks in the bond and the oil market who are saying, yes, we're going we're getting into a recovery, but it's not going to be too exciting. And the stock market thinks that the economy is going to go gangbusters. And I tend to think the stock market is more likely right. Yeah. Um, the bond market tends to predict down markets really well and up markets kind of on a mediocre way. 
Uh, it's really good at saying when we're due for a recession. It's not so good at saying when the market's ready to rise. That's just something that's always been true about the bond market. It's good at forecasting negatives. It's, it's like Eeyore, only Eeyore when he's usually right. The bond market is generally kind of depressing. Yeah. When, when they talk about growth into the future, they say we're mildly optimistic about this. And, and you kind of have to speak like a bond trader there and slow down your words and talk like this and say, oh, poo. Basically, uh, just, they're just bankers. Right. And, and they, uh, bonds and stocks both have a place, but you have to understand what they are. And so that's, that's an important thing. Um, and I'm going to jump in and say something else that's just big that's happened. You've already said it, but I'm going to say it again. It's 2021. We are in the next year. And along uh, for my entire life, there's been a saying that uh, hindsight is 2020. Well, now we're able to say that 2020 is hindsight. Thank you very much. We, we are beyond 2020. The bar has not been set high. I think we can do better this year, but I'm not going to guarantee it. How's that? Better as a whole, as a country, as a nation, as a world. We make no warranty or guarantee as the accuracy or completeness of the information we provide. Right. And now we also have some questions that are sitting out there waiting. And they're good ones. Uh, the first one is one that hits me right in the scholar. It is fantastic. We got a question here. Uh, the Wall Street Journal did an article um, this week, uh, this last week. Uh, on, well, I guess it was yesterday. Um, the future turns 50 this year because uh, 1971 changed the world. That was the year that we stepped out of the Bretton Woods Agreement as a nation. Um, and that's what the question is here. He read that article and he said, I saw that it's been 50 years since Nixon canceled this system in place since the 1940s. What is the current system? Well, kind of to lay out what he's talking about. The Bretton Woods agreements, w agreement, there are multiples, but this, was, this is the one we're talking about, uh, took place in 1944. This is the end of World War II. Um, the majority of Europe is in rubble, literally in rubble. There's not... You know, we, we've all seen footage of it. It's all black and white, but it's still real. It's really hard to imagine that as reality for today. But the majority of the industrialized nations of the world were the United States. That was it. United States was the majority of industrialized nations in the world because the rest of them had been demolished. And coming through that, the Bretton Woods system was that all of these countries, both allies and enemies in the war, would come together into one system, and they would base all of their currencies on the U.S. dollar, which at the time made a great deal of sense because their currencies were essentially worthless. They didn't have any revenue. They didn't have any taxes coming in. They didn't have any, any revenue to tax because it was demolished. We had done very a very good job in World War II of breaking all the toys. The United States was just far enough away that not all of our toys got broken. We won. Well, coming out of it, it's not necessarily a good thing to be the winner when all your trading partners can't afford to buy your goods. 
So the Marshall Plan was put into place. We started spending a lot of money on the rebuilding of foreign nations, both enemies and allies. Uh, and in the meantime, we said we're going to peg the dollar to gold so that our system doesn't somehow have a trump card over everybody else's system. So you're going to peg to the dollar, but the dollar is going to be pegged to gold. And nobody's allowed to own gold in bullion or in anything other than coins, and those coins are worth $35, period. We set the price of gold at a fixed rate of $35 an ounce. And we said, anybody out there is able to exchange their currency directly $4 at this fixed rate with a 1% ability to move up and down. Why was that? Why did we do that? Well, we did it because one of the biggest instabilities in a emerging or being rebuilt nation's economy is its currency. Its currency can fluctuate wildly depending on what other people think of it in other countries, whether or not they want to buy it or sell it and so on. So we said, let's jump ahead of that and fix this so that doesn't knock us back down. Well, in 1971, well into Nixon's presidency, uh, the French, who were still upset at us about lying to them, specifically de Gaulle, who was still upset at us about lying to him about where and when D-Day would occur, because he had a lot of Nazi spies in his um, exiled administration. So let me kind of put back, he was the exiled government of France while the Nazis ruled France. Uh, and he was located in, in Britain, in the United Kingdom. And uh, he had a lot of spies in his organization because there were a lot of family members that still lived in France, and the Nazis had power over family members. So the U.S. government knew that, and they said, we're not going to share with you the actual date, to themselves. They didn't say this to them. Instead, they told him the wrong date and the wrong location, and it got leaked, and Nazi divisions moved because of it. Huge numbers of Nazi troops moved to the places that we told the Gaul that D-Day would be. Calais. Uh, Calais, yes. So the Nazis reorganized their entire defensive plan based on the information that we gave Charles de Gaulle. Well, Charles, Charles de Gaulle does not like, did not like to be lied to. So in 1971, after nearly 30 years of slowly acquiring U.S. currency, he took this massive amount of U.S. currency and said to the U.S., we want gold. And the problem with that was even then, there was not enough gold to go around for all the dollars in circulation. There just simply weren't, there, there's not enough gold that's been uh, mined and refined on the planet to replace the dollar. So uh, Nixon had to call together all his, his advisors and say, what do we do about this? We have this agreement that says we, we can transfer this over to gold. And the advisors said, all you have to do is leave the gold standard. Because it doesn't make sense anymore. We did this in 1944 because we needed to support all these other governments. And now we have a vindictive and spiteful France who's saying, I don't care that you did it to help us. We're going to bankrupt the United States. So we left the gold standard. What did it leave in its place? And that's the end of this question. It's been 50 years since Nixon canceled the gold standard. 
specifically, I think he was saying since he canceled the Bretton Woods Agreement, but he didn't, just the gold standard. What's the current system? Two other major institutions that we still talk about and complain about um, because they're major institutions, and I don't know any other major institution that we don't complain about as well, is the World Bank and the IMF, the International Monetary Fund. Those were both systems that were set in place under the Bretton Woods Agreement. The part of the system that's no longer in place is the part that says that we have a fixed value on currencies. So what system do we have in place? It's the foreign exchange market. It's a purely capitalistic market where investors, whether they're governmental or private, can go in and buy up huge blocks of currencies of other nations or small blocks, or you can get into the foreign exchange market. Uh, and it's very volatile. It's, it can be all over the map, um, but it's the system that we have in place today. It, it is more difficult for an emerging country to emerge from basically Stone Age with their foreign currency exchanges being so volatile, but it's just accepted at this point. This is just the way it goes. Now, and that's kind of dovetails into the next question that he had. Go ahead. Well, you know, we're off the gold standard, which is the essence of the Bretton Wood Agreement. And the Bretton Wood Agreement says that dollar, a dollar and silver were equal. An ounce of silver was one dollar. And 35 ounces of silver equaled one ounce of gold. And gold was $35 an ounce, and that was it. And it was illegal during the Bretton Woods Agreement and during when we were on the gold standard, it was illegal for an American citizen to own gold bullion. As a matter of fact, nowhere in Europe was it legal to own gold bullion. You could own jewelry. Candlesticks. You could own coins. But you couldn't own gold as an investment, in essence, unless you were a numismatist. Um, so the point is that today a lot of people have gold and gold has a tremendous variance in value from day to day and from month to month. It goes up, it goes down and it is controlled. A lot of that is controlled by places, places outside the United States. The United States demand for gold used to drive the price of gold. It doesn't anymore. Actually, the demand for gold in China and India is the largest driver of the price. And the supply of gold is controlled by South Africa and Russia. And a lot of people think we should go back on the gold standard. I've met several people who really believe we should go back on the gold standard. Well, to go on the gold standard, you have to have all the nations of the world agree that people can't own gold. They can't own gold bullion, and they, the government takes it. As a matter of fact, when we went on the gold standard, I think it was around World War One, we went back on the gold standard. All citizens were required to give their gold to the United States government at whatever price the United States government said. And if you didn't, it was a felony, and there were people in prison for owning gold. And I don't think we need to go back to that. The, and above, the, the number one producer of gold on the planet right now, I want you to take a guess at this because it's not who it used to be. It, is, it might surprise you. It used to be Russia. Right. It is no longer Russia. Russia is now number four. <laughs> South well, Africa is no- number five. Used to be, South Africa was first for a while, and then Russia... Well, they both dropped. China's the number one producer of gold in the world. They produce 355 metric tons of gold per year. Australia is number two at 270 metric tons, and then the United States at 237. You know, in other words, we would give the value of the dollar, the control of the value of the dollar to China if we went on the gold standard. Right. Because they could simply stop producing gold which would cause the value of the dollar to increase, which means that 
nobody would want to buy our goods on the foreign market. Our dollar would be too expensive. So the prices that we would charge for our goods would be too high. And this kind of dovetails directly into this next question by John. He's looking at another article that says King Dollar abdicate, abdicates and that's okay. Is King Dollar really dead is his question. What is King Dollar? King Dollar means that the dollar is the strongest currency in the world, as if that has some kind of a bearing on who we are. Um, having a strong currency doesn't actually have anything to do with strength. It just means it's expensive. And if you have the most expensive currency in the world, it makes your exports very expensive. It's very easy to buy things outside the country, so our exports become expensive, but our imports become cheap. The more expensive the dollar it is, the easier it is to buy from the rest of the world and the harder it is to sell to the rest of the world. So there's never been a policy on having the dollar be the best or the highest or the strongest. Those are all words that are inappropriate to the meaning best, highest, and strongest doesn't actually mean that you have a good currency. It just means it's expensive. Uh, and I know we're using words like best and strong, and those are usually things in like sports where you say, this is the best team or the strongest team, and that means that they really are the best or the strongest. The dollar being high is not necessarily good for the United States economy or the market. It, 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 it's something that we need to be aware of. If the dollar is unusually high, it's like the market being unusually high, and it has been. That means it's likely to decline. Why? Because we've got an open market system. We've got a free trade system in the open market in the world. And when the dollar is unusually high, there's a reason for it. In this case, during the pandemic, a lot of people were concerned that their nations would collapse, that their finances in their nations would collapse. And they sent a lot of they bought a lot of U.S. dollars for a simple reason. It is the most stable currency on the planet. It's the most stable and the most likely to be there into the indefinite future on the planet. So a lot of people bought dollars and park their money there. That's called the carry trade. Um, and the dollar being, it caused the dollar to rise because there's a lot of demand and there's a limited supply. And now that the pandemic looks like it's going to be over and economies are recovering and they can get better yield someplace else on their money because we have inflation of about 1.6% and an uh, interest rate on short-term uh, dollar-denominated investments like treasury uh, bills and so on of nearly zero, they're losing about 1.5% a year by leaving their money parked in dollars. There are places like in Europe right now, the euro, for example, even though there has negative yields in the German, for instance, money market system, they're in, they're fighting deflation. So the difference between the yield that a person gets on their, that on the euros bought from Germany and the actual inflation rate, the, the spread is less. They lose less money by parking their money in Germany than they do in the United States, in essence. So the money is flowing back out of the United States and it's flowing into Japan, where it's a traditional carry trade, and Germany, which is another traditional carry trade source. Now, all of this is really, really good for our exports. Uh, the long term with the trade war is, we, and we talked about this during the pandemic, we're still in the pandemic, but during the bad, bad times in the economy during the band pandemic, and there's still some really rough stuff out there, but it's sustainable on the long term now. It wasn't for a while. 
uh, it made buying things from the rest of the world really easy. And we saw that in our balance of trade. We had a, a tremendous negative. We're buying a lot more from other countries than we were selling to other countries. We hit several record uh, balance of trade issues where we were, we were buying a lot more from overseas than we were from here. This was during a trade war and a pandemic. That's not good for our foreign export market. So having the dollar drop in value, consistently drop in, in value like it has since uh, June, is really good for our exports. And we should be able to see like our farms and our manufacturing, the profitability of sending it to foreign nations are about to, it, it, well, it is, it's going up drastically. Another thing is that if you hold foreign investments, if you have an emerging markets fund or a foreign value fund or an international value fund or a foreign, if you're in the TSP and you have the I fund, you're going to see, because the dollar is weakening, you're going to see an increased performance, a higher performance there that has nothing to do with the underlying investments. It's the currency side of things that is causing a, a greater profit there. And we should expect some more of that into the, into the coming future as the vaccine hits everywhere, people are going to be less worried. When they get worried, they tend to send money to the United States. Um, we got a lot of egg on our face this time around. When they sent us money, we wound up being, in some ways, the most instable when it came to the pandemic. But that's just a part of who we are as a system and a part of how we dealt with it as a system. So that that is kind of... The, the long answer is King Dollar dead. No, it'll be back. There'll be another wave of this and then another wave of people saying King Dollar is dead. And because there isn't, it isn't like dethroning something. It isn't like now who's going to replace the dollar as the strongest in the world? Because the reality is that strength is not the right word. And I was losing video with you for a while. I'm not sure if you had something to say in this. No, it's okay. Um, the thing about King Dollar being deposed, it really isn't. The, the dollar is and will remain into the indefinite future the most stable currency in the world and the most secure. I agree with that. I mean, we just have a system that's 200 years old. Actually, the system only began that we have today at the end of the 19th century. But we have a good system and, and, and matured into the 20th century. But we have our Federal Reserve system backing the dollar. And they are the quality control. We manufacture and export. Our largest export is the dollar, which is why we do not have a balance of trade issue, by the way. Uh, because when we, we manufacture and export dollars, it's a product that's used all around the world. As I've said many times before, and I've said it, and I say it again now, the Chinese use dollars to buy the raw materials that they use for their economy. That's because right. universally accepted. Their currency is not. But another massive event that took place, uh, we talked about it a little bit last week, is that the Brexit deal was reached. What is Brexit? Well, the, United, the, the United Kingdom is leaving the European Union, which is in essence a really complicated free trade zone uh, that also has some common government of uh, law enforcement and a whole series of other things. But they're leaving that. They're going back to being 
uh, subsisting solely on the deals that they have rather than uh, allowing Germany or France or Italy to have more of the control of the United Kingdom's economy. Now, whether or not that's a good thing is up in the air. This is a big question. What we do know is them having a deal is a lot better than them not having a deal. So why did I say this is a nice dovetail? Because there's one other country in the world that comes close to doing with their currency what the United States does with ours, and that is uh, the United Kingdom. Um, And just, I'm going to throw this out there. This is useless trivia, but it's fun anyway. Um, The United Kingdom is the official name of this country. Quite often they're referred to as Great Britain. Uh, Great Britain is like saying the big island when referring to Hawaii. Uh, the British islands are the Hebrides, uh, the, the big island that is Wales, Scotland, and England, and the little island that is Ireland, with a lot of little islands around them. Those are called the British Isles. Great Britain is the big island. It's just an earlier version of it. So when people refer to Great Britain, they're actually leaving out part of the United Kingdom big chunks of the United Kingdom. Uh, There's a chunk of it that is Northern Ireland. And this was one of the issues in this trade agreement is that Northern Ireland needed to have some kind of special treatment on how it interacted with the rest of Ireland. Uh, Because the EU, the European Union, came in at a time when there was, there was still occasional violence between Protestants and Catholics in Ireland, not just Northern Ireland, but the entirety of Ireland, mostly Northern Ireland. And that's pretty much gone now. It's, it's been long enough that it's gone. We didn't want to see a return to a hot war in one of the most developed nations on the planet. Um, that would have been bad long term. And it doesn't look like that's happening. It looks like we've got some good things in the deal there. It looks like one of the great things that can happen here is that uh, trade agreements with Britain can be established directly. Uh, They are one of our number one supporters in the world. And having a direct agreement with them without having to have Greece sign on as well is kind of cool for the United States. So the long term on the Brexit may be a big benefit to the United States if we follow up on it. Uh, We actually do give personalized financial and investment advice, which has, you know, we're giving it our, our educational stuff out on the air. We can talk to people of high net worth directly and give our advice through our fiduciary firm, the personal wealth coach. Uh, And if you would like to contact us off the air to get that kind of advice, the phone number for that locally is, 254-947-1111. Or you can reach that toll-free, if you still have a landline, at 1-800-914-7526. That's 800-914-PLAN. You can go to our webpage, thepersonalwealthcoach.com or tpwc.com. We've got our newsletter up there, and you can sign up for it. We've got a, a whole series of recordings of the radio program, and our new podcast is being linked up there this year. Um, and you can contact us through the contact form or directly in email at jeff at tpwc.com or jake at tpwc.com. Thank you for listening, and we'll be back next hour with more of the Personal Wealth Coach. We appreciate you guys more than we can say.